you brought a Bible, open with me to Revelation chapter 12. While you're turning there, I hope that you had a chance to read the report that came from uh, your pastor's wife, Susie Young, this week. Uh, A lot of really good and very exciting news. The first of which is, is your prayers from last week have been answered regarding trying to get some of the details uh, around Jimmy's visa extension taken care of. God was very gracious to give them exactly what it was that they wanted. So that looks like as if they'll be able to finish their work in the time in which they had intended to. I would also remind you that uh, today, actually, Susie said, uh, is uh, Jimmy and Susie's 47th wedding anniversary. So that's great. Uh, Give a a prayer of thanks for them. Uh, I think they're doing some celebrating, actually, on a little getaway for themselves. Uh, I think she said in a a Turkish spa. So whatever that means, um, that'll be good for them, and we rejoice with them on God's faithfulness to them in their marriage uh, during this time. But obviously, continue to pray for your pastor uh, and for his wife and for their safety and for their safe return here in the next couple of weeks. Revelation chapter 12, I want to begin in verse 1 and actually read the entirety of the chapter. (laughs) John says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon at her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. To a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus And he stood on the sand of the sea. Grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. 
I want you to imagine briefly this moment that you are a doctor and you have a patient who comes to you complaining of headaches. They explain to you that they've taken Tylenol and, and, and Bayer and, and Advil and ibuprofen of every kind, but it doesn't seem to help. You order a scan done on her head only to find that she has a large but operable tumor pressing against her brain. And what you explain to your patient is, is that the reason why the remedies that you have been uh, employing to deal with your headaches aren't working is because the remedies have not accounted for the reality of what's really going on inside your body. In other words, the reason why your life doesn't seem to be getting better is because you've not seen the realities that I can see as your doctor. How many times do you find yourself in life not realizing that there's a whole other story in the background that's going on that, that, that puts your present struggles in an entirely different light when you finally have them uncovered? And all I want to sort of pitch at you this morning is, is it possible that the reason why the remedies in our lives are not fixing us, are not helping us, are not encouraging us, is because they've not accounted for the unseen realities around us. Why do you think that the world is going the way in which it is? You may think the world is going just fine. Good luck with that. But how do you explain the problems in the world today? There's all kinds of narratives. You might look and say the problem are those, those awful Republicans or those Democrats or that president or this Congress. You might look and blame radical Islam You might look and blame a a lethargic American evangelical church. You might look and blame that terrible job that you've never been able to get yourself out of. But we all live with an idea, a story that we're living that sort of is attempting to remedy the problems that I have. And in the light of those remedies, we live our lives with a certain idea of the solution that's going on around us. But what we have here in Revelation 12 is a story that's going on behind the story. And it's a story that looks and says that in the midst of your life, in the midst of the trouble of life, and the danger of life, and the destructive power of life, there is nothing else than a malevolent personality that we call the devil. Revelation 12 through 14 constitutes a brand new major section in the book of Revelation right before the final display of God's wrath in chapter 16 through 18. But what John is doing here in chapter 12, I would submit to you this morning, it is tra- is he's tracing for us the underlying cause for the hostility that the church faces. And we find out that it's none other than the rage of Satan himself. It's the devil that is working behind all of these things. And the reason why humankind's antidotes have failed to sort of work in the 20th century is because they're grounded in the wrong categories. And we've not understood the world from God's perspective and what's at work in the world. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to take a look at the devil. Of all of my readings that I enjoyed this particular year, I picked up a book called Reviving Old Scratch. And the author, who is a professor in Texas, had talked a little bit about how the, uh, the people in his poor neighborhoods would refer to the devil as old scratch. Presumably, etymologists tell us that that idea stems from 
a Norse word, scrat, that people would speak of. You remember Tom Sawyer has his sweet old Molly who looks at him and says, you better watch out because you've been messing with old scratch. And what the author was trying to say was, is as he began to deal with all of the political and social problems in his city, and he began to see the destruction of humanity that was there, he said, I couldn't fully understand it until I began to see it as very real, spiritual, malevolent powers at work in the world. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about three things. Number one, I want to talk about that the devil is working. Number two, I want to talk about why the devil is working. And number three, we have to see how the devil is defeated. That, why, and how. First of all, that the devil is working. Because frankly, I think we have to convince this generation that we really do believe this. You know, those from the extreme right in many ways sort of gratify the existence of the devil, sort of picturing him in very weird ways, that there are these glowing eyes in the corner that we saw. More liberal types themselves think it's just completely absurd, this idea that there's this red pajama individual sort of floating around the universe. But the biblical picture is actually far more sinister. And you learn it through the definition of what these characters are. Let's take a look at who these characters are. First of all, there is a woman. And as it turns out, the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are often referred to as a woman. Isaiah 54 says, sing, O barren one who did not bear, for your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. God is talking about his people. John is referring to the woman he has pictured, he has personified all of the people of God in the midst of this woman. Paul picks this theme up in Galatians 4, if you think about it, where he says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the believing people that existed before him. We find that she is clothed with the sun and a crown of 12 stars, meaning that she is a royal character and crowned with dignity. And why is she royal? Because from her comes the Messiah. That's the child. The child in verse 5 who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, but who was caught up to God and to his throne. What is he referring to? It's referring to Jesus. Jesus came from the people of God, from this woman. In other words, John intends for the people of God, if you think of yourself as that this morning, to identify with this woman because she is your character in the story. Now it gets more interesting, doesn't it? Because of the second character. The second character is a dragon and he is quite fearful. He has authority with his seven heads and his horns. He has power because he has seven crowns. And we find also that he is murderous, which is the color of red. And what we find out is that he is the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. We'll get back to that in just a second. But it reminds us of that scene there in Job chapter one and two, does it not? Where, uh, where Job appears before God and says, your servant Job only worships you because you've made his life so easy. Take away any of it and he'll curse you to your face. You remember that story? But the point is this, Christianity has always taught that behind all of the evil that we see in the world is not some impersonal force or, or, or bad karma, but that there is a person, a personality that has malevolence at his heart, that someone, as it were, is hunting you down. And as archaic as, as, archaic as it sounds to the modern ear, 
I want to make an appeal to you this morning that our world knows that this is the case. A number of years ago, I was reading a, 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 a movie review after the, the, the sort of horror film revival, The Blair Witch Project had showed up. You remember this movie? I don't know if you saw it. I could barely watch it because it had a shaky camera and it made me nauseous to watch. But when The Blair Witch Project came out, there were, there were no monsters ever shown on the screen. Horror flicks prior to that time tended to sort of be rather cartoonish in their sort of blood and gore that they would show in these movies. But for the Blair Witch Project, you began to get sort of an, an unseen evil that was at work behind the scenes and, and just off the camera and just out of sight of my frenetic, jumpy life. And this reviewer was noting, he said, you know, it seems as if there's a generation rising up who has listened to all of the modernists say to us that the spiritual realm is not there. And this generation is rising up saying, you know what, I think there might be someone out there. I think there actually might be something just on the other side operating beneath the, the, the surface who's responsible for the evil that we have. Frankly, since that time, you've seen a revival of horror flicks. And I would argue, is it not possible that the reason why our culture is this fascinated why you have a series that, that, that called Breaking Bad that is nothing about the story of a man who plunges his way into ultimate evil, ending in his own destruction, is a culture that is trying to come up with an explanation for why the evil in the world is there. And we as Christians should be the first ones to say, we know the reason we see it. We've always taught this. Is it what was behind all these uh, evils on the world, whether it's Rwanda or the Sudan or the Bosnian cleansing or 9-11, whatever you might pick, is the devil himself, the great dragon in moving. So what that means is, is there's a burden of proof, I would argue, on the culture to explain some of these things away. I would argue that it's actually far more logical, far more rational to say that behind all the evil that we see, there is someone who is set upon the destruction of God's people and all of the things that God loves. This is your worldview, Christian, straight from Scripture. So that's that the devil is working. Secondly, why is the devil working? What is going on? What, what is the reason for his activity? Because what we, and what we find here is some help in these rather weird numbers. And I hope you noticed them. And I can go ahead and admit to you like I have in weeks past. That there's been a lot of discussion over Revelation chapter 12 and exactly what these weird numbers mean, especially those found in verses 6 and 14. What are those enigmatic numbers there? 1,260? Time? Times? And half a time? What are those referring to? I would simply like to offer, and again, I'm extremely helped by Donald Carson and his notes on Revelation for some of this insight. And I think it's very sound and has, the, has a lot of years of church history to back it up. But let me begin it this way. When I say to you the phrase, four score and seven years ago, I don't think that for your average American individual, your immediate thought is to think 87. That's what that means, 87. And of course, you would be right in that case. But doesn't it mean more than that? That if I say it to you in that way, four score and seven years ago, your mind is immediately recalled back to a time in our nation where very deep political divisions threatened to undo us. But that in the end, the union survived and America remained somewhat united. 
That, so, in other words, it's possible for numbers to sort of become more to us than simple, uh, literal ways of interpreting numbers. Well, as it turns out, I think that there's an explanation for these numbers. Many of you may be, may be aware of the fact that there is a space between the very end of the Old Testament writings and the beginning of the New Testament, about 400 years to be exact. And during that time, there's a lot of history that went on with the Jewish people that not a lot of people are familiar of. And at one point, the, the Jewish nation had come under the rule of the Seleucid dynasty of Syria. There was an evil Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes who began to march on the Jewish and attempt to force feed paganism to these very devout Jewish folks. And at one point, they had finally laid siege to Jerusalem and the slaughter had begun. Well, in the midst of that siege and those months, there were a number of emissaries from the Syrian army that went up to see some, a one Jewish rabbi. And there was a brief exchange between the two of them when the emissaries murdered the rabbi. Mattathias was his name. Well, that was a mistake for a lot of different reasons, mostly because Mattathias had a son who popularly among his friends was known as Judas the Hammer. Don't mess with the guy whose last name is The Hammer. But if you translate the hammer into Aramaic, it comes out Judas Maccabeus. And Maccabeus become, uh, Judas becomes, begins to lead what now is known as the Maccabean Revolt. The revolt happened, and actually, uh, the army, uh, sort of uh, military theorists still study this guy's uh, tactics because it's the beginning of guerrilla warfare. For three and a half years, Judas Maccabeus leads this giant revolt throughout, troubling the Syrian army, attempting to free Jews here and there, until finally it ended in a war proper, a sort of proper battle, when miraculously the Jewish people overcame and destroyed the Syrian army and routed them and brought freedom back. Well, because that time took three and a half years, the idea of three and a half years became, as it were, emblematic for these people. Or, if you work on a 30-day calendar and add up three and a half years, you guessed it, 1,260 days. Or time, one year, times two years, and half a time, three and a half years. In other words, I believe what John is doing here is he is picturing for his people, speaking to these Jewish people who have become converted but know their own Jewish history. And is saying to them that what you are going to find yourself in the midst of in almost every epoch of church history is a period that will be like unto what we went through as a people from 164 to 167 BC. When we looked around and thought as the armies approached us that there was no way for us to prevail. But then in the end we succeeded. Do you see what John is saying? To these beleaguered churches, he is saying, it has been appointed that this conflict with the dragon is going to go on for a specific period of time of intense suffering before God himself will manifest himself in saving power. So what is John's point? He's saying that it's true in every epoch of church history. That there will always be those. The dragon will continue to move. The dragon will continue to accuse. The dragon will continue to consume his own people until such a time as God is going to eventually bring about a miraculous healing. Sometimes in this life, with the toppling of demonic kingdoms, 
but at all times for the people of God at the moment of their death when he catches them up into perfect glory. And so therefore we now know why the devil is working. The devil is working very clearly in verse 12 because he knows that he's a defeated foe. Don Carson says this is psychologically believable. He said, you know, when World War II, when D-Day finally came and everyone realized that you had that mass of armies that had landed on the French shores and you realized that Hitler had been fighting a sort of two-front war, anyone could see in the days after D-Day that the war was over. But did that mean that the conflict had stopped? Absolutely not. Some of the worst fighting of the war, not the least of which was the Battle of the Bulge, was still ahead of them. But, it, but there was still a defeated foe. Every defeated foe who is, who is wounded, mortally so, will be more dangerous than they were before. And that's what John is saying. John says the devil knows that he has reached his end. He knows that he's been destroyed. He knows that the fatal blow has been delivered. And that's the reason why he's that much more dangerous. And we live in those times. And so at last, I'm ready to make a prediction about the future. You wonder we were going to get to this, right? It's a book of Revelation, Les. What's going to happen in the future? I think we're ready. Are you ready for this? The people of God will advance through the world. The gospel will advance, and Satan will oppose it with great fury until Jesus is ready to put an end to it all, and nobody knows when that is. There you go. That is as much as any Bible translator can give to you. I promise you. They think they know exactly. They don't. That's as much as you have. But isn't that what you needed? Because I don't know about you, but whenever pain enters the life, there's no greater question that we preoccupy ourselves than why is this happening to me? And it's because you can feel, as it were, the breath of the red dragon breathing down your neck, always threatening, always pushing, always destroying and ready to consume. But there's hope. There's great hope. And that brings me to the third and final point. And that is how the devil is defeated. This passage is actually intended for our encouragement. And it's beautiful when you see some of these images. It tells us how Satan is overcome. The first way that he is overcome is that the woman is always protected. Notice what it says in verse 6. That she goes and flees into the desert. Reminds us of Hosea 2.14 where God looks at uh, his uh, bride and says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Isn't that a sweet passage? The wilderness for God's people is a place of his tenderly fatherly care. Now, is it barren and difficult? You better believe it. But the reason why he brings us into the wilderness is not to punish He brings us into times of leanness so that he is the only thing that we can lean upon. And if Hosea is right, he's there speaking tenderly to his people. In other words, the the wilderness is a place where God is going to refine people and nourish his, his people. I love in verse 14 where he talks about wings that are like a great eagle. As soon as you see the word eagle, you cannot help but think, of one of the sweetest passages in all the Old Testament, Exodus 19.4. You know, I just thought of this. This is dangerous to do an illustration that's not in your notes. When I, was in, um, when I was in college, I worked out at WCRV, the AM640 Christian radio voice. I have no idea if it's even still going. 
But I worked out there late at night, and I'll never forget listening to the great J. Vernon McGee, who would come and preach on Sunday afternoons right around lunchtime, just as my shift was ending for the night. And I remember one of my favorite sermons by him, which was on Exodus 19.4, and the verse goes like this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. And if you know anything about J. Vernon McGee, he's got that thick southern drawl. Or he's like, he came and got you, my beloved. He came and scooped you up tenderly like a mother covers her hens. Listen to what John is saying. John is saying that the reason why the woman is protected is because she is cloaked in the tenderness of her Lord. And so before we ever begin to bring an assault against the devil and the great red dragon, we have to do so without the burden of the slavish fear that always wants to cling to God's people. In other words, the, the, the slavish fear in which we find ourselves gripped in is the very thing that is giving Satan his power to work. Because as we find out, that's his number one job. The passage in here says to us that his job is to be the accuser of the brethren. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? Why the accuser? I might understand if it said that he was the destroyer of the brethren or if he was the troubler of the brethren. No, he, he's the accuser. Ah. My friends, before you can defeat the work of the devil in your own life, you have to be able to recognize his attacks. And his attacks do not come in the overt, again, red pajama, you know, <laughs> bifurcated tail of a, of a devil or sort of glowing eyes in the corner of my child's bedroom at night. None of those things are where the devil works. The place where the devil operates is in that little voice inside of your head that rises up and says, I don't care what you thought you knew. It doesn't matter what Jesus has said to you. I know what you did. I know how you've behaved. No God will continue to love you in the midst of that. The voice of the accuser. Because what does it do? You know, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus knows and the devil knows that if he can convince you that God has not won for you the great salvation that he has guaranteed in his blood, you will sit lethargic and fearful and tattered and, 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 and listless because he knows that the thing that motivates everybody is joy and wonder and praise. That's transformational. And so there's the little voice, the little voice looking at you and reminding you and throwing in your teeth yet again exactly where you've been and what you've done and suddenly making you able to outsend the cross. And what I hope, and what I think John hopes, is at that moment, you begin to recognize it and you feel the breath, the breath of the dragon right behind your ear. Because when it comes down to it, the way in which these people had overcome him, look what it says. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. The Greek there actually says very specific that they overcame him on the ground of the blood or by the instrumental means of the blood. In other words, there was something about the blood of Christ that became for it the way in which Satan was silenced. 
Listen to the calculus of your own spiritual pain in John's view. That as we begin to face the assaults of the devil to my own mind, that maybe even this morning we were seated right here, maybe whispering to you, what do, who do you think you are to be here? Who are you to think that you're going to face your death with confidence? I will be the voice inside your head that will tell you that what God has promised you on the other side of your own death is not real. How do we face that? The logic is, is we go back to the blood. And we say, Father, he's throwing my sins against me. He's tyrannizing with me with, with the truth of your, of your law and of your judgment. And I know I failed. But you know what? You demanded a payment for that failure. And it's already been paid. And it would be unlawful for you, O oh God, to exact two payments for one sin. And if you killed your own son for me, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So finally, the only question that has yet to be answered is whether or not he is willing to care about me in that way. One of my favorite stories is from an old Scottish minister by the name of Alexander White who had some business with an older fellow minister one night that went sort of late into the evening. The business was complex. It was, it was tiring. And yet, even though their business was resolved, the older pastor just kind of lingered around for a little while, seeming to want to say something, but couldn't quite say it. Couldn't quite say it. But finally, when at the end of their meeting, as it was closing up, the old minister looked in Dr. White and said, Now, sir, have you any word of comfort for an old sinner like me? Dr. White says that beneath that, that pasted-on smile, somehow he saw that beneath that question was seriousness. And a man who was struggling with deep agony, an old minister. He was an old saint, Alexander White would later on go and say, but he still had no joy of the peace of his forgiveness. And so not knowing what to do, Dr. White just rose from his seat. He walked over to the elderly man, and he took him by the hand, and he said, he delights in showing mercy. A quote from Micah 7, that we, that we serve a God who takes joy, that it is his pleasure to show mercy on sinners. Not much more was said by either man. They both departed for the evening. But the next morning when Dr. White came into his office, there was a small little note waiting for him that came to him from the other minister that said this. Listen to this. He said, oh, dear friend, I will never doubt him again. Guilt had hold of me. I was near the gates of hell, but that word of God comforted me, and I will never doubt him again. I will never despair again. If the devil casts my sin in my teeth, I will say to him, yes, it's all true, and you don't know the half of it. But I have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. Who, who is the God with whom you have to deal? Who are the devils that sort of plague your life? And is it the God of Revelation chapter 12? Because once we begin to see that picture, we find why it was that Martin Luther could invite us to sing it this way. And though this world with devils filled 
should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph for us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word will fell Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. And his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. And Father, in a place like this, may we undo the deeds of the devil. Forgive us, Father, that we have imagined him in the most cartoonish ways. And we have not seen that the real mischief has been going on in our hearts to keep us, even midway through this summer, discouraged. Father, we have committed great sin. We have been unbelievably faithless. And yet the worst sin that we have done is to diminish your blood. And we have thought little of the word of your testimony that you have borne to us in the Bible. So, Father, we're asking you now to deal with our hearts. Would you come and bind us up? Because many of us have been victims. We are waylaid, our souls undone by how the devil has worked. So we ask that you would give us grace even this morning to see through and to be covered by the blood. Perhaps even someone for the first time who never thought there could be grace for them. Would you do that? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.